0: There's a part of the world where Christianity seems dead. And it's not for lack of effort. For hundreds of years, people have risked their lives to bring the gospel to this walled off world. Their work has been met with resistance. Their prayers go seemingly unanswered. And the name of Jesus remains unheard in these impenetrable places. And it's been this way for almost 14 centuries. But we're sitting on the edge of a new moment in history. Because from those places of silence, rumors are emerging. Whispers of change in some of the most veiled countries. And these stories aren't just coming from one isolated area. They're surfacing all across the world. Something is happening. Something big and unprecedented. Because as it turns out, what once seemed dead is still very much alive. This is Maverick, a podcast where we bring you stories of people who dare to go against the grain. And in this season, instead of telling the story of one man, we're following rumors. We're tracing a wave of movements that spans from North Africa to Malaysia and everywhere in between as the gospel sweeps through the Muslim world.
1: We began hearing rumors about a movement among Muslims. It really, it was shocking. I remember kind of rejecting it out of hand as not true and wanting more information.
0: This is Ted Essler. He's the president of Missio Nexus. And before his role there, he spent a lot of years as a church planter overseas.
1: I worked in a Muslim context. And I can remember back not very long ago, when ever there was even one breakthrough in a Muslim culture with one person who was interested in the gospel, that news was big news and it reverberated through the community because it was not a common occurrence. The crazy thing that was spreading through the rumor mill was that in some of the hardest to reach places in the world, these indigenous leaders were seeing small house churches that were growing and multiplying and creating new house churches in movement fashion. And again, it was so astonishing at first that I tended to dismiss it out of hand.
0: And Ted wasn't alone. There were a lot of leaders in the mission world who were hearing these same rumors and doubting whether they could be true. Many of them had spent years on the field, and like Ted, they hadn't really seen more than a couple Muslims come to Jesus. But the stories they were hearing were about thousands, sometimes even hundreds of thousands. And as much as they hoped those stories were true, it felt unlikely, and they wanted answers. So Ted and a group of other leaders decided that they were gonna to get to the bottom of these rumors.
1: So when we had this idea that maybe it would be helpful would be to tell the bigger, broader story here, you know, how real is this? And what could we learn by going to some of these sites and trying to interview and get some better data on what's happening? And so that whole process began. And David was obviously the best positioned person to make that happen.
2: My name is David Garrison. I've been involved in Christian missions now for almost 40 years. I've got a couple of degrees from Baptist institutions and a Ph.D. in historical theology from the University of Chicago.
0: Over the last four decades, David has traveled to more than 100 countries, studied more than a dozen languages, and written several books.
2: And all this is a part of the journey that God's taken me on to understand how he's redeeming a lost world. And that, uh, I suppose, was the preparation that made it possible for me to launch out on this survey of Muslim movements to Christ.
1: One of the difficulties in trying to understand what's happening with movements is the nature of missionary research. The layer of cross-cultural reality the layer of security and concern for people that might be persecuted in that setting, miscommunication that happens just because of language. And that's why a lot of the research that's conducted in this space is qualitative, it's interview-based, it's trying to understand the stories that are out there and then trying to determine if those stories are telling a bigger picture or if instead those stories are just kind of one-offs.
0: So David was an obvious candidate. He understood the nuances of Islam and the diversity of the Muslim world. He knew how to travel and interact cross-culturally and how to deal with multiple languages and language barriers. And he knew how important it was to get accurate information. So Ted reached out to him to see if he'd be up for the task.
1: I think when we first approached David about the project, we knew that we wanted some resource that would tell the big picture of what was happening with movements among Muslims, but we also didn't know what that entailed. So
2: he uh, suggested that I put together a proposal. What would it take to really find out across the Muslim world what's happening today? Where would I need to go? Uh, How many interviews would I need to collect? So I, I went to Southwestern Seminary, I went to Southeastern Seminary, I went to the University of Chicago to their Divinity School and went down to Baylor to their Institute of Religious Studies. And I went up to Fuller Theological Seminary and talked to um, Dudley Woodbury, sort of the Dean of Islamic Studies in America. Finally, I went to the Pew Forum in Washington, DC and sat down with one of their Islamic demographers to get his input so that I would be assured of gathering the best information possible as I went into the Muslim world to encounter these rumors of movements.
0: And I think we need to stop here for a second to understand what David means when he says movements. Because his survey wasn't going to track individual conversions. He was interested in something bigger.
2: It was a movement of at least a thousand baptized believers in a particular ethno-linguistic community in 20 years or less.
0: So to break that down a bit more. His definition of a movement has sort of three anchors. First, baptized believers. He wanted to measure something more reliable than just someone claiming to be a Christian. For a Muslim to be baptized is risky. And no one in an Islamic culture who isn't a serious follower of Jesus gets baptized.
2: The second thing was a thousand. We felt like a thousand baptisms in 20 years or less. That meant that anyone whether it's a Muslim or a Christian or a secular academic, would look at that and say, yeah, something significant is happening in that community. And that brings us to the third aspect of this definition, in an ethno-linguistic people group. That means uh, we're not talking about a thousand baptisms across the Muslim world constitutes a movement, but these were people who are all related. They were somewhat in the same uh, language and ethnic identity. So with each of these, we wanted to make sure that Our definition was used the same way, whether we're talking about West Africa or we're talking about Indonesia or anywhere in between. If we said this was a Muslim movement to Christ, you knew that there were at least a thousand baptized believers from that particular community and quite possibly far more than that.
0: So after a while, Ted and David had a plan. David was gonna visit these places where the stories were originating from, document them and determine their validity. They figured it would take about a year for him to visit 12 countries and conduct somewhere around 100 interviews. And after that, they'd have a good picture of what was really going on.
2: And it turned out to be quite a delusion because before this was over, I went to 44 different countries and uh, gathered more than a thousand interviews, covered a quarter of a million miles in travel. It took me three years, and it turned into the largest uh, global survey of Muslim movements to Christ ever conducted.
0: David's first stop was Indonesia. This was sort of ground zero because before all the recent rumors emerged, the ones that David was tracking, there was an initial movement that started it all. And that's where I want to begin as well, with a story that literally changed the course of history, and it can be traced back to one man on the island of Java.
3: I've always been a student of missions now for almost 40 years. And I'm, I've always been drawn to um, you know, the stories of places that God seems to be moving in some unusual way.
0: This is Don Dent. He's the professor of global missions at Gateway Seminary.
3: So that's, that's how I got in, interested in this man, Sadrach. And his story has fascinated me ever since. Mm-hmm.
0: Sadrak was born on the island of Java in Indonesia. It's a beautiful and crowded island with a long history of religious tension.
3: Traditionally, the Javanese, like most places in the world, primal religion was animism, mysticism. And the Javanese carried the mysticism to great heights. It was incorporated into every aspect of their lives and has been for a long, long time. And then eventually, Islam came, and it came largely through trade, and then once established in some places by trade, it actually began to grow by military action.
0: And then around 1600, the Dutch East Indian Company started to take over Indonesia, through trade at first, then through treaties, and eventually they had political control over most of Indonesia. And the Dutch came under the banner of Christianity, But the Dutch Reformed Church was connected to the government, and their whole concept of Christianity was state church. So it was pretty wrapped up in power and control. So
3: as they arrived in Indonesia, they found two kinds of places. They found peoples and islands that were non-Islamic, that were more animistic. And to those places, they sent missionaries. Because in their minds, they were thinking, we could turn this province into a Dutch reformed province, and then we will trade with them. And of course, a lot of the trade was spices, which were worth almost their weight in gold. It's hard for us to imagine the the riches that were connected to these spices. Now the other areas, including Java, uh, they found that vast parts of the country were already Muslim and they decided that instead of sending missionaries to them they would sign treaties with those rulers and they would agree we will not try to Christianize your people if you will give us this trade agreement and we'll basically be in charge of most of your economy. So out of that we have about 200 years where the Dutch built churches for themselves and did evangelism with non-Muslim peoples. But in the Muslim areas, like Java, there was absolutely no evangelism.
0: And the Dutch were harsh to the Javanese people. They forced them to grow cash crops, which left most of them starving to death, and the country was basically just fighting to survive. And right at the height of all of this, in the early 1800s, There was a five-year period where Britain took over the Dutch East Indies. And during that five-year period, the British sent missionaries to Java. Those missionaries began work on language learning and Bible translations, and they were trying to bring the gospel to the Javanese in their own language for the first time. But their window quickly closed and the Dutch came back, took control of the island, and denied them visas. The Javanese Bible they had created sat on the docks of the main port city for 25 years, mostly just eaten by termites because the Dutch refused to release it.
3: Now, all of that is background to this story about a young boy that was born in this particular place. So he was born right in the heart of perhaps the most Islamic portion of Java, somewhere probably around 1835. He was just a typical poor uh, Javanese village kid. Uh, And we don't know anything about his parents, but it seems as if his parents died while he was quite young.
0: Eventually, this boy Sadrak was adopted by a Muslim family, and he was quickly put into an Islamic school. In his late teens, he decided he wanted to go deeper in his studies, so he left home to do more extensive training.
3: And he actually becomes what in Indonesia is called a kiai. He becomes a recognized Quranic expert and, teacher. and during that time, Sadrach ran into people who said that they believed in Christ. And this really drew him. He wanted to know more, and he actively pursued learning more about the gospel. Uh, at one point, he was living where he could walk five hours each way and go to attend church on Sunday. (laughs) That's amazing. And then later he walked 250 miles to go to a place where he heard there was a man who would teach him more deeply. And so he went all the way over to what is now Jakarta to learn and hear about the gospel and study it. And during that time, he finally came to a place where he really understood and believed And he asked for baptism. He wanted to be a follower of Christ.
0: And what Sadrach did next was something that no outside Christian missionary would have known to do because he started going into every village in central Java. And he would find the leader of the village, which was also the Islamic teacher in the village, and he would challenge them to a debate.
3: This has to do probably more with the mystical element of how Javanese people look at power But they were used to the idea of a teacher coming and debating their teacher. And if that new teacher won the debate, people would assume he has the real power. And their teacher and all of the people under him would now turn to this new teacher to learn from him. This is how that mystical knowledge was passed. This is even how understanding of the Quran was passed. So he would get into these debates, and as far as we know, he won every one of those debates.
0: And from those interactions, entire villages began to follow Jesus. Sadrak would disciple new believers and raise up leaders in each local church before moving on to the next village. And he created a network throughout Java of Christian leaders who would meet regularly and learn from each other.
3: And by this time, he did have a Bible in the Javanese language. That old translation that had been done was finally printed and put out. And so now he and others were using uh, the Bible in the local language so that they read in their language, they prayed in their language, they worshiped in their language, and they began to use Javanese forms of art and other things that that were considered very Javanese, you know, culturally very appropriate and beautiful. So, what, what we see happening here was an innovation. Up to that point, their world had been divided into two groups. There are Javanese Muslims, and then there are Dutch Christians. And there's no connection between those two. Sadrak's innovation was to declare quite openly a completely new identity that had never been thought of on either side before. And so he used the term Christian Jawa. We are certainly Christian, but we are completely Javanese.
0: And that right there is what gave the gospel roots that it had never had before. The Dutch Christians had been trying to make Indonesians Dutch, Islam tried to make them Arab. But Sadrak showed people a Jesus who could be followed by all nations and worshiped in all languages. And for the first time, the gospel felt at home in their culture. So to understand why that's such a big deal, let me go back for a minute and put things into perspective. Islam began in modern day Saudi Arabia in the seventh century. And for the first 1,200 years of its existence, millions of Christians were assimilated into the Muslim religion. But during that same time frame, the amount of Muslim movements to Christianity can be counted on just one hand. And it's that history that made it seem like God was just never really gonna move in the Islamic world. And then after centuries of nothing, things exploded on the island of Java. By the time Sadrach died, there were 20,000 Javanese Christians in Indonesia. And what no one knew then was that this crazy new movement that seemed to come out of nowhere was just the beginning. Right around the same time that Sadrak's story took place, there was another movement in Ethiopia. And then on the heels of those movements, Indonesia had another massive conversion of 2 million more people. Then in the 1980s, people started hearing about movements in Iran and Algeria. Reports popped up about movements in Bulgaria, Albania, West Africa, Bangladesh, and Central Asia. And within 20 years, there were 11 more movements across the Muslim world. So by the time David got tasked with tracking the movements of the 21st century, he was expecting to come across another dozen instances. And that would have been mind-blowing in and of itself. Even a dozen new movements would confirm that something completely unprecedented was happening. But what David discovered was that in just over a decade, there were 69 new movements.
2: More Muslims came to Christ, came to baptism, came into the kingdom, than at any time in the 13 centuries that preceded them. Truly, we could say with certainty that we're living in the midst of the greatest turning of Muslims to Christ in history.
1: There has just never been a time where we've seen so many Muslims investigating for themselves the claims of Jesus and seeing the kind of growth that we're seeing right now. But we are living in the time of potentially the greatest expansion of the kingdom of Jesus that has ever happened.
0: And despite how revolutionary this is, most of it is happening without anyone knowing about it. Movements that shape entire nations are unfolding in secret. And behind each of these movements are countless stories that have gone untold. Stories of people encountering Jesus and being transformed. Stories of people putting everything on the line for the sake of the gospel. And it's these stories that David uncovered as he followed the rumors. So we're gonna retrace his steps and hear these stories for ourselves. We'll go where he went and find out what exactly is happening and what we can learn from this new moment in history. This season of Maverick was sponsored by Global Gates. They're dedicated to reaching the ends of the earth through global gateway cities. For more information or to get involved, visit globalgates.info. To help support the Maverick podcast, consider giving monthly at themaverickpodcast.com.